On the back of your outline, I've got one more Bible study question that's been turned in. So on the back of the James outline, you're going to find an outline regarding the sons of God. Uh, the question has been asked, who are these sons of God? And there's several uh, scripture references there that we're going to look at this evening. But uh, the question specifically, are, are these fallen angels that fell with Satan? The place to start with this question is, is in Job chapter 37. So I'd like you to, or Job 38 rather. So turn there if you would. Job chapter 38. And the reason we're turning there is because this is the first reference to the sons of God. Now, it's not the first reference in Scripture as far as, you know, when you find them. You find them actually in Genesis chapter 6. We'll get there. But in terms of chronology, Job 38 is the first place in history that you'll find the sons of God. So we're going to start with the, uh, the Bible has a principle called the principle of first mention. You look at the where they're mentioned first, and God reveals his, will, his word, word to you as we do that. So they are first mentioned in Job chapter 38, verse 7. So look there. Well, let's start at verse, um, uh, let's just start at verse 1. Uh, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkened the counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now what's being referred to here is obvious, is the creation. And the, he's talking about the fact that these sons of God were there when the foundations of the earth were set. The sons of God in that verse, verse 7, are connected to the morning stars. So I'd like you to hold your hand there in Job and go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And when you get there, look at verse 19. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19. If we figure out who these morning stars are, then we'll find out the connection between them and the sons of God. So uh, Genesis, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. It says, write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. Watch it. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So it identifies these stars as angels. So back to Job 38.7, then when it talks about these morning stars, uh, those morning stars are angels, and the sons of God are connected to them, connected to these angels. So, I'd like you now to go to Ezekiel chapter 30, 28. I believe the connection there lets us know these sons of God are angels. Let's figure out what kind of angels they are. Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, you are aware Ezekiel chapter 28 is a chapter, although in type is talking, I mean, rather uh, specifically is talking to about a specific person. However, the type can't be missed. He's actually talking to uh, Satan and, and describing Satan and what happened with Satan. So I'd like you to look at verse 13, Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13. Speaking now to Satan, he says, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. Speaking again to Satan, The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in, the, in thee in the day which th that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. So this is Satan prior to his rebellion, prior to his fall. And we know that from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14, Satan is also an angel. He's called that an angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11:14. So what we see here in Ezekiel chapter 28 is Satan as an angel. And the Bible says there he was given a beautiful voice. Now, that being the case, we would assume that in Job chapter 30 and verse 38 and verse 7, since he is the anointed chair of the covers, therefore he was more, more than likely leading this heavenly choir. 
as a second in command, as this choir sang out because of, of the creation of the universe, that beautiful chorus is, is singing of those angels, and there is Satan, I, just, I believe, leading the way. Now, this is just as an aside. This is just a little preaching here before we get back to the study. Have you noticed how often music is involved in dividing churches? How often it's music that people get focused on. Church members at odds with each other. Of all the things we might be concerned about, of all the things we might divide over, why music? Well, it's because the great divider is a master musician. He's a good musician, and he uses that tool to his advantage when he sets out to divide God's people. Now, I know this is going to sound extreme to you, but as much, as much as they want to say it's only music and it's no big deal and just listen to whatever you prefer, I think there's more to it than that. And I believe from what I've seen here there is. I think Satan has convinced many people that it's just music. And by doing that, he can divide us with that music. That's why we don't make music an issue here. We sing hymns, we sing spiritual songs that are doctrinally right, and we don't vary from that. And our music is not the focus of our services. Our music is a support to the preaching of the Word of God. Amen. It prepares your heart for that. And I believe our music does that in a great, great way. I think there's more safety if we just stay in that lane and just let the music be where it's supposed to be and don't make more of it than we should make of it. Because I think music serves a great, great purpose if we just keep it where it needs to be. Just use it for the purpose God created it for. Now, look at Ezekiel 28 again and look at verse 15. It says, Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as a profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O the covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Now we're not going to get into all that tonight. What you see here is Satan sinned, and God removed him from heaven as a result. And when that rebellion occurred, some of these angels, these sons of God, were cast out with him. Uh, Jude, chapter, uh, Jude verse 6 says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the, uh, unto the judgment of the great day. Second uh, Peter 2.4, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So from those two verses, we see when Satan was cast out, uh, some of these angels, these sons of God, these angels fell with Satan as he was cast out of heaven. Uh, Go to Job chapter 1. Go to Job chapter 1 and look at verse 6. Job 1, 6. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Go to chapter 2 and look at verse 11. Job chapter 2, verse 11. That was not the verse I wanted. Let's find where is it where it talks about the sons of God appearing. Oh, there, verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. So God allowed these, these sons of God, these fallen angels, to be on the earth. And they came to God every so often and presented themselves to him. Uh, God gave them latitude as to what they were able to do while they were on the earth, but God also kept boundaries on them. He kept track of what they were doing, just as we see in his discussion with Satan. Uh, Satan told him what he wanted to do, and God set the parameters for that. He let him know what he could do and what he couldn't do. So every step these sons of God took while they were on the earth, God kept track of that. Now, this all happened before the flood. This is all prior to, uh, this is the creation and so forth. This is when all that occurred. Now, with all that said, go now to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. When we get to Genesis chapter 6, I want you to look at verse 1. 
Now, I want to say before we read this, this could lead us into a study for weeks, months, and we're not going to do that tonight. I'm just looking at this passage in reference to who are these sons of God. So I know there's more we'd like to talk about or you have questions about, and you can certainly write those and we can talk more about them. All I want to do tonight is look at these sons of God specifically in this passage. Now, verse 1. Genesis chapter 6, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same being come, uh, became mighty men, which are of old, men of renown. Now, I know the Bible students have presented various ideas as to who these sons of God are. Uh, some say the sons of God were the sons of Seth, and that they came into the daughters of Cain, and that's why they had this, this mixed uh, multitude of people uh, resulting from that. Uh, the title sons of God is used to refer to two groups of people. The sons of God refers to, as we've already seen, it refers to angels and it refers to born again believers in the church age. That's the only two what times you ever find the sons of God listed. And that's the only two groups they refer to. Well, in Genesis chapter one, we are not or Genesis chapter six. Rather, we're not talking about born again believers in the church age. That is not who these sons of God are. The only other possibility with that reference, with that title, is that these are angels that fell. These are angels of fell, not the sons of Seth. These are these are angels that fell with Lucifer. And at the time after they fell, they're roaming on the earth in some sort of a physical body. I can't explain all that to you. I don't know. All I know is they're roaming on the earth in these physical bodies. And the Bible tells us in verse four, they began to procreate with the daughters of men, uh, with these women that were on the earth. They began to have babies with these women. And so here you have angels procreating with human females. Uh, the angel seed mixing with humans, human biology. And it tells us in verse four, a mighty race of uh, a mighty, a group of mighty giants came from that union. A great race of people came from that. So whatever they were, they create, they created and influenced such evil on the earth that God couldn't allow them to continue to be here. And he sent a flood to destroy them. And apparently after that, sometime after that flood destroyed them on the earth, as far as those physical bodies, those angels were, were restricted by God into this holding place that Peter and Jude both refer to. So they are destroyed off the earth by the flood. And once that occurs, uh, they go to this holding place where God has put them and hold them there until the judgment finally comes. Now, that may create more questions than it answers. However, that's who I believe the sons of God are. They are two groups of people. The sons of God are either angels who were created before the physical creation of our universe. That, that's who they are. And they now exist in two groups. They are angels who serve God as messengers, as we see in Hebrews chapter 1, and also we saw in Revelation chapter 1. And second, they are angels that fell with Satan and are now being held by God until such time that he's going to judge them. That's why I believe they are as far as how Scripture teaches it. Again, there's so much more we can say about it. I'm going to hold it there because we'll just get too far into it if we don't. But that's, that's the answer, I believe, to that question. You're all dazed. You're just shaking up. All right. Well, the Scripture's all there for you. Feel free to track down through it and see what God says to you about it. All right. Let's get practical. Go to James chapter 3. Not that that's not practical, but this is really practical. James chapter 3. And if you do have questions, the question cards are out there on the back table, I believe. If not, we'll make get some more put together. Feel free. If you have questions, write them down, and we'll do our best to answer them for you. 
Now, last week, if you were with us, we were in a very doctrinal passage in the book of James. Uh, James was talking about the relationship between faith and works. And although every scripture that you find in the word of God has three interpretations, historical and uh, doctrinal and practical or spiritual, sometimes it's a challenge to find spiritual application in the verses. Uh, James chapter 2 is one of those places. It is such a doctrinal, doctrinal passage that our practical understanding of that, practical application of that is very limited. Now, in chapter 3, that all changes. Now, I'm not sure you think it's going to change for the better because it's, it's, a, it's a rough chapter to go through, but it does change. You probably have some of the, of the most practical teaching now from the book of James that is found in chapter 3. Because every one of us here tonight, everyone who's listening to this message, uh, can relate to the topic that James is going to address as he goes into this chapter 3. Look at verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. So here James sets the context. The context is speaking to masters. And masters in this context is referring to teachers. Uh, remember, they called Jesus Christ master, and what they were asking, tell, calling him is teacher. Uh, those who desire to be teachers uh, need to become teachers, not just so that others can be impressed by what they know. There are those who desire to be teachers, but not so that God can learn from them. They desire to be teachers so that they might appear smarter and so they might appear to have more knowledge than anybody else, and therefore you need to listen to them because they're so smart and have all this knowledge. <laughs> you may have met people in your life, I'm sure, who are intent on letting you know how much they know, or intent on letting you know how much education they have, or where their education came from. I meet folks all the time from certain colleges or certain universities, and they want to make sure you know what university they're from or what college they went to. And the reason they tell you that, not all of them, but oftentimes why they tell you that, is what, so what they say carries a greater weight than what somebody else might say. Because they came from this college, uh, they're well-educated, uh, you might have gone to this inferior school, they went to a good school, and so therefore they know more and can teach more. Uh, that is something the world does routinely. Uh, turn on the TV anytime or turn on online, whatever you do, and watch the experts they put before you. Every expert they put before you, they're going to tell you where they studied or how much they studied. <laughs> That's their, their claim to fame. That's their credibility. They may not have any idea how to change a light bulb, but you're supposed to listen to these people because of where they studied or how much they studied. And sadly, the same mentality has creeped into the church. Uh, people gain a following in Christian circles because of how, not because of how godly they are or because of how, God, uh, how God has used them. They gain a following because they went to a noted Christian school or because they've written a lot of books or because they earned a degree or because they have a lot of letters behind their name. And because of these credentials, people respect them and listen to what they have to say. Many in the church seek status in the church by proclaiming how much they know. <laughs> and I'm sure you've met these folks. If you haven't, you will before, it's, uh, before things wind up. James is making it clear. If a person seeks to be a teacher, there's a warning that comes along with that. And the warning is that the, with the more information a person gives out and the more per information a person gets, the more they're going to be held accountable. The more you get, the more God's going to hold you accountable for what you get. And the more you give out, again, the more God's going to hold you accountable. Uh, there is greater condemnation to those who proclaim themselves to be teachers or who take on that role. Uh, they are held to a higher standard, according to verse 1, because of the role that they take. So notice verse 2. For in many things we offend all. If a man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body. 
So the teacher has more opportunity to offend people because they have more interaction with people and they're presenting truth that may not sit well with everybody. Uh, They have a greater chance of saying something stupid. (laughs) I think sometimes we uh, like the notoriety or the recognition that comes with certain positions positions in God's work, but we don't take the time to understand the requirements and the liabilities that come along with them. A person who who desires to be a teacher of the Word of God, whatever form they're in, whatever uh, role that takes, They've got to be sure of four things. First of all, they must be sure that they, everything they teach is biblically based. Got to make sure they teach from the word of God. They must make sure, number two, that nothing that they teach comes from their own convictions, but rather is what God's word says. I've known a lot of preachers who preach what they think and not what the word of God says. That's not how it's supposed to go. Number three, they must be sure they have their own lives under control and are living by what God's word says, whether they like it or not. (laughs) You may not like what the word of God says. You still have to do it. And number four, they must be sure that they're allowing God's spirit to lead them both as they teach and in their personal walk. Because if any of those things aren't true, they open themselves up to God's condemnation and they open themselves up to offending others for non-biblical reasons. And so James warning is this. Don't aspire to take on a position in God's work until you have assessed all that goes along with it. (laughs) Make sure you know all the whole story before you take it on. If God has called you to do something, make sure you're prepared before you do it. Allow God to prepare you for that thing first. And he will do that. He'll definitely prepare you for it. But if you're not prepared, if you're not ready for what he calls you to, you increase the condemnation that comes on you as a result of that. Now, again, in verse 2, James identifies for us the main way that a teacher would be offensive. That teacher would offend by what they say and by the words they use. That's how the offense will come. When I put together a message, I write out every word of the message that I'm putting together. Every word is written down. And I do that to, uh, make, to avoid, uh, make, at least make every attempt uh, to avoid what James is cautioning here. I have found that the more off the cuff I go, the greater chance there is I'm going to say something that's going to be offensive <laughs> because my mind starts to go before my brain, my mouth starts to go before my brain engages. And I'm going to offend somebody unnecessarily by doing that. Now, this may not surprise you. It's certainly not going to surprise Sandy. I've got a number of stupid things going on in my brain. <laughs> I mean, I've got some really dumb thoughts going on up there all the time. I mean, there's always something stupid going on up there. And if I said every one of them, every one of you would be offended. I'd probably offend myself <laughs> because they're just fleeting thoughts. They have no basis in truth. They're just kind of those electrical impulses that create these thoughts. And I got to be very careful. These things don't need to be said. That's why I write every word out to keep myself on track. I may go off the cuff from time to time, but I can always get myself back because I've got the words written down here. The more a person is in front of other people and the more that a person speaks in general, the greater chance there is they're going to say something that's going to offend somebody else. Now, if a person has never been offended, James tells you here, if you've never offended anybody by what you say, what are you? You're perfect. (laughs) Well, nobody here is perfect, so therefore all of us at some point in time have offended somebody else by what we said. Uh, We all say things either intentionally or unintentionally that offend somebody. And that is increasingly the case in this overly sensitive society that we live in now. You can't say anything without offending somebody. You couldn't read a grocery list without offending somebody. (laughs) I mean, they are out there looking to be offended. And sadly, uh, that is even more the case, I believe, in the church. Uh, People come to the church just to be offended. They look for the offense. Uh, Churches are a breeding ground at times for people who are just looking for somebody to offend them. And then, of course, once they are offended, they broadcast that offense to anybody who's going to listen to them. 
But what James is telling us here is this. No matter how hard we try, because we are not perfect, sooner or later, we're going to say something that's going to be offensive to somebody else. And so what James does in the last part of that verse, verse 2, he likens what we should do to uh, how you control a horse. Now, as I've told you, horses hate me, and I'm not crazy about them either. (laughs) So we'll just get that on the table right away. So when James talks about the bridle here controlling the horse, that may work in theory. That's a wonderful thought. But I could give you several examples of my own experience with horses where I'm pulling on that bridle with all my might and they're walking me through the woods and branches are hitting me in the face and I'm falling off the horse and all the rest of it. And that's really happened. I'm not making this up. That's really happened. So uh, James makes this point. I get it. But uh, my personal experience really hasn't worked that way. However, however, in the hands of the right person, one of those people who actually likes horses, (laughs) what James says here is true. He says that if a person is able to control their words, they're able to control their whole body. That's pretty interesting. What James implies here is that what a person says reveals their heart. If you want to know what's down here, listen to what comes out of here. (laughs) And you'll know pretty quickly what's down there. James says what you say will reveal your character. It'll reveal your motives. The words a person uses are a window into their character. What they really are. Uh, Sandy read me a quote a couple of weeks ago. I'm not sure where she got it, but it's been on my mind ever since she read it, read it to me. The quote is this. The character of a person is revealed by how they respond when they don't get their own way. That's pretty good. That's why I can't shake it. <laughs> the character of a person is revealed by how they respond when they don't get their own way. A person's character is revealed by how they react when they don't get what they want. They feel like they deserve it and they don't get it. And that reaction is most clear in what they say, the words that flow out of their mouths once they don't get what they want, and who they choose to talk to about it once that happens. And so if a person has their mouth under control, what James is telling us here here, indicates they have their whole body under control. And a person who can't control their words is a person, according to James, who is out of control in other ways as well. It's just the first indicator. And if you watch that person, there will be clear indications that that's the case. Now, all that said, look at verse 3. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Well, again, in theory, that's a a really good point. Hasn't been my experience, but that's beside the point. But verse 3, what he's saying is this. If you put the bit in the mouth and pull that horse using that bit, it's going to control that horse. Now, I did a little research since I know very little about horses. I found that the average weight of a horse's bit is around two pounds. That's what I read. I read the average horse, and again, this probably varies, but the average horse weighs somewhere between 900 and 1,200 pounds, an adult horse, 900 and 1,200 pounds. So a person who understands horses and likes horses is able to put a two-pound bit in that horse's mouth, a 1,000-pound horse, and control that horse with that bit. Two pounds controls a 1,000 pounds. <laughs> Look at verse 4. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet, are, yet they are Yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Now, again, he's talking about controlling the direction of a ship with a rudder. Now, at the risk of insulting your intelligence, uh, most boats have some sort of an implement in the back of the boat that you can turn one way or the other. And by turning that, it turns it makes the direction of the boat go the way they want it to go. Now, the rudder of a ship is a fraction of the size of the, a fraction of the size and the weight of that ship itself. And yet that rudder is all that is needed to direct a huge ship wherever that one steering that ship wants to go. 
And James makes the point again that even when that ship is in the midst of a storm, that rudder is still sufficient in most cases to have that ship go in the right direction. And then notice verse 5. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. Here's the application again. Just as the bridle is compared to the horse, and just as the rudder is small compared to the ship, so also if we compare the tongue to the size of a person's body, it is quite small in comparison. The average tongue I read, I just thought, well, I'm going to check this out. The average tongue is around three inches long. A man's tongue a little bit larger than a woman's tongue. The average man is about 69 inches tall, and the average woman about 64 inches tall. So the length of a person's tongue is about 4% of the height of a person. Think about that. Uh, 4% of a height of a person is the size of that tongue. So James says the tongue is a little member. That's exactly the case. 4% of the size of your body. And yet he says it boasteth great things. Now, when I read that, I thought about what they call uh, this phenomenon, phenomenon they call the small man syndrome. You ever heard of the small man syndrome? It refers to a, a condition where a man uh, feels inadequate because they're short. And so they try to overcompensate by being overly aggressive. That's called small man syndrome. Well, your tongue has small man syndrome. <laughs> your tongue is small, but it wants to be in charge. It wants to have power. One of the smallest members of your body, but it makes up for all of that by making great claims and boasting of great things. People have made some outrageous claims and have committed themselves to doing some things that were simply impossible to do by saying what they said. <laughs> and the, we know the old phrase, you know, that talk is cheap. Anybody can claim anything they want to claim. They can say anything they want to. Doing it in their eyes is as though they've already saying it is as though they've already done it. But in fact, saying it and doing it are two very, very different things. And many times people say stuff they're incapable of doing. They make promises. They make commitments and have no ability to do it. No intention of doing it. But that tongue talks. That little mouth makes that little tongue makes claims and that are impossible to fulfill and the person turns out looking like a fool because they said something they couldn't follow through on. We can hurt scores of people in the process of doing that. And so with that, James gives us our third image. Again, look at verse four or verse five, rather. The third image to illustrate how destructive that tongue can be. Even though. So, again, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. Every fire starts with a spark. Look at verse six. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a fire. Every fire starts with a spark. And from that spark, if it's left itself or if it's fanned by the wind, it can burn down millions of acres of trees. Over half of the wildfires that are in Canada right now began with lightning strikes. Poof, just a strike. Uh, a little bit of lightning hits that ground and there's a spark and that fire starts and builds and builds and builds. And you see the destruction that's going on now. Uh, 37,000 square miles have been burned, probably more than that now. That's larger than the state of Maine. That's how much is burned just from a spark. Poof! It started up and the fire began and began to take over that country. Those fires started with sparks. Every time we use our tongue, we need to have that image in mind. Just think about lightning striking a dry area and watching those flames just shoot out as a result of that. That's a good image to keep in mind when you think about that tongue. I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago how, that, how destructive Facebook and other forms of social media can be. A person can post something on Facebook or post a tweet, maybe only a few sentences long, about whoever or whatever subject they want to talk about. And depending on the nature and the intent of that post, hundreds can be negatively affected by that. 
Uh, those few words can set people against each other and can cause people to draw lines against each other. And people who have been friends, people who have been fellow church members are now angry with each other and are opposed to each other. And the only thing that caused that was a few words that were sent out with some sort of malicious or divisive intent. Just a spark. <laughs> All it took. And that flame begins. Someone had a position they felt they needed to express or an axe they felt they needed to grind. And a wildfire is the result of that. I've been watching just on and off the efforts they've been making to try to put those fires out in Canada. And it's fascinating, although it's destructive, but you watch how that water is dumped out in one place and three other places show up. So they go over there and dump water there and three other places show up over here. No matter where they go, those fires just keep springing up. They kill one and something else starts. It's almost an impossible task to kill those fires. That little tongue you have in your mouth can start a blaze that is impossible to put out. Impossible to put out because the effects of our words are far reaching. And once those words are spoken, it's impossible to pull them back. One thing you can't do is take back words. A lot of stuff you can change. You can't change that. (laughs) Once they're said, they're said. And you can apologize all you want to and ask forgiveness all you want to. But the memory of those words remains. Even if that person forgives you, there's still the memory of the words. We can't erase that. We don't have the capability of doing that. And the effects continue, even though all that's been settled, the effects are still there. It takes a great deal of effort to put out a wildfire. And even after it's put out, we've done a lot of hiking in the mountains where you see wildfires have been. And those wildfires occurred a hundred years ago. And the trees are still standing with no leaves on them and charred ground. A hundred years later, that's what happens with those fires. That's what happens. A wildfire will, will occur and the charred remains of that fire can exist for hundreds and hundreds of years. And nothing grows there after the fire occurs. Charred ground from destructive words. Evidence of what we have said might exist forever, either externally in broken relationships or internally with wounded hearts. Now, notice what James says here. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire. Watch it. A world of iniquity. A world of iniquity. Interesting. I love the comment Matthew Henry made about this. Let me read this to you. He says, There is a great pollution and defilement in the sins of the tongue. Defiling passions are kindled, vented, and cherished by this unruly member. And the whole body is often drawn into sin and guilt by the tongue. Go to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And when you get there, look at verse 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 6. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said this. Look at it. Ecclesiastes 5, 6. Suffer not thy mouth to cause the flesh to sin. You see it? Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. What's he saying there? He's saying a person is going to say something and will open the door to them doing something. That, that tongue, those words, will cause a person to make a decision, and that decision becomes a behavior, and that behavior becomes sin. A person speaks some negative word about somebody else, and that opens the door for a barrage of words to be leveled against that person. And the heart and the mind become consumed with it. And soon all restraint is off. And some of the most destructive words and behaviors result. I've, you've watched it. I'm sure I've watched it happen. Somebody starts a conversation and says a cross word. 
And the other person says a cross word. And out back it goes and back it goes until finally there's this barrage of anger coming out from both of these people uh, from just those two words that were spoken at the beginning. That mouth opens up, that tongue works, and the whole body responds. Our tongues will open the door to a world of iniquity. Our tongues, Solomon says, can get our flesh to sin. Because once that tongue speaks, if it goes long enough, all restraint is off. Our tongues can defile the whole body. It can set on fire on the course of nature. Look at the verse again. Go back to James. He says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature. He says that fire sets on, uh, that tongue rather, sets on fire the course of nature. Do you know how Hitler gained power? He, intent, he had intense speeches, powerful speeches. He gave those speeches over and over and millions heard those speeches and began to buy into what he said. And millions of people died as a result of what started out with just a spoken word. Don't underestimate the power of it. You know how Lenin and Stalin got started? Through speeches. They gave speeches and they appealed to people who were listening and they couldn't provide one thing they were promising. But they kept saying it and saying it and saying it. And millions of people are still following those words today. (laughs) And nothing has been fulfilled. Thousands have died as a result that those words were spoken. The course of nature is saving life not destroying it. Nature is all about saving life. The course of God's nature is about saving life, but lives are destroyed every day due to the spoken or written word. Churches and church members are destroyed because of the words of some disgruntled or frustrated Christian. Every church split, every church division, every church conflict I've ever witnessed and said I've witnessed more than began rarely with an action. It rarely began with somebody doing something. Rather, they began with words that were spoken in hallways and through texts and phone calls and letters, all done behind the scenes, just words spoken. And soon believers are at odds with each other and friendships are destroyed and churches divide, all because those words were spoken in one way or another. You don't have to do anything to divide a church or divide people. You don't have to do a thing. Just start talking. Just start saying stuff. Just use your words. I'm not telling you to do it. I'm just saying (laughs) that's how it happens. It begins with words. Folks, the course of God's nature is unity, not division. The course of God's nature is unity, not division. Who's the divider? Satan's the divider. God is the unifier. So when you see division, who's in charge? We know who's in charge. And when you see unity, who's in charge? Very few spoken or written words uh, can take what God intended and completely reverse or destroy his work and destroy those who died for it. A few words is all it takes to destroy what God wants and what God desires. Go to Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18. When you get there, look at verse 21. Again, Solomon, the wisest man, says this about, he had a lot to say about our tongues, by the way, a lot to say about our words. Interesting, the wisest man who ever lived had a lot to say about that. Proverbs 18.21. Now look at it. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. What you feed on determines what you love. If we feed on negative words and negative attacks on other people, we indicate that we love death. 
And if we avoid negative words ourselves and avoid those who speak them, we indicate that we love life. Let me ask you a question. Which side do you think God's on with that? Is God a God of death or is God a God of life? So if we say that we love God, shouldn't we love what he loves and avoid what he doesn't love? Shouldn't we love the words of life and attach ourselves to those who speak the words of life? And shouldn't we hate the words of death and avoid those who speak the words of death? It only makes sense. If that's what God loves, let's attach ourselves to what God loves and avoid what God hates. So if we know people who speak words for the sole purpose of destroying or tearing down, wouldn't it be wise for a believer to avoid that and not feed on those words? You know how those folks have an audience? Because we provide it to them. If you know somebody who's a divisive person who speaks and speaks divisively, uh, they can only have an effect from that if you stand and listen to what they're saying. (laughs) If you stop listening, they have no audience anymore, and there's no effect at that point. You see, we need to attach ourselves to those who speak words of encouragement, words of edification, words that glorify God and glorify his work. We should give an audience to those folks who speak those words. So let me wrap this up by saying this. This is such a simple concept that we make so complicated. And we're going to talk more, a lot more about it. Now, James has a whole lot more to say about this. And that's okay. We need to hear it. I need to hear it. I'm assuming you do as well. If a person speaks words that build up, involve yourself with that person. If a person speaks words that tear down, get away from them. <laughs> Remove yourself from them. Don't be an audience to them. And you'll find them everywhere. You'll find them in the church. You'll find them at work. You'll find them in your neighborhood. You'll find them in your family. You'll find them everywhere. So if you know somebody who speaks words that tear down, get away from them. Don't give them the audience. And you know how you put out a fire? You know what they do to put out a fire? They build a ring of fire around the fire. And the thing burns out and has no place else to go and it stops. So you see, just build a ring of fire around it and let it burn out. (laughs) And you do that by pulling yourself away from it. Don't be involved in it. If we listen to the words uh, of those who are positive, we'll take those words in and we'll be edified by them. If I take in the words of those who want to destroy and tear down, I'll take those words in and I'll be destroyed by them one way or the other. Who we listen to will either cause us to participate in life or in death. And we have the choice. Talk a whole lot more about it on next Thursday night. Watch us stand.